Unlike some people who see it as a chore, I always love packing my suitcase for a holiday. I do it in my mind as I sit on the London tube, thinking of folding silk palazzo trousers and white crepe shorts into my holdall, and then crucially, putting them on for the first time, for that drink on the terrace when the smells and sounds of holiday hit the senses. For me, dry pine needles, red geraniums, and the rattan and rubber of new espadrilles are a sign I have arrived, swiftly followed by a stiff artichoke negroni and a swim, of course. This episode of Confect Corner hopes to press play on the season and evoke the moment you unpack your bag and shift gear for a summer break. Our resident wine expert will take us through the finest and most refined rosé wines to stock up on and we'll even talk about the history and future of swimwear. It's an homage to summer and the joy of travel by train, a celebration of sea and style. So join us for an hour of escapism before you reach for your own luggage and make for the door. I'm your host, Sophie Grove, and this is Confect Corner. With the train, with the Frecciarossa, it's like a movie through Tuscany. It was just amazing. What was radical was the fact that women were wearing trousers. And the seaside, I think, has always been a place where constraints in terms of fashion have melted away. At that time, they would have been considered definitely pushing the boundaries. And it is like the rose-tinted glasses. Everything looks better and feels better after a bottle of rosé. <laughs> Welcome to the sixth episode of Confect Corner and each month I'm joined by Gillian Tobias who is here with me in London and Confect Style Director Marcella Palak who is over in Zurich. Hi Sophie, nice to see you again around the table. Hi Marcella. Hello London, hello London. (laughs) I'm lucky enough to have actually seen you in the flesh recently on a visit to Zurich which was wonderful, rainy kind of relentless summer rain it has to be said but so nice to see you and just be together in the office and talk about confect in real life the rain hasn't let up since I've left I've heard (laughs) indeed the only thing that we didn't do was going to Utoke because there were high waters but we will do this when you come back I did have a swim it has to be said you had? yeah just a pre-dinner swim on the last day we just nipped into the lake at Kusnacht even though it was a little bit well, the lake had swollen to the point where <laughs> the stairs were hardly visible, but it was a nice dip. As always, we start the episode with something that has caught our attention, perhaps a great independent designer, a perfect beach read or a new spot for summer holidays. Gillian, I hear you found your next favourite cocktail bar here in London. Oh my God, what a delightful find. It's in a part of London that I very rarely go to. It's Rotherhide and it's in South London. It was the old shipyards. In fact, the Mayflower sailed from there in the early 1600s. And it has a very distinct atmosphere and there's something quite heady about it. So to find a secret garden that is a botanical garden that has turned into the most intoxicating cocktail bar called the Midnight Apothecary. It's above the historic shaft of the Brunel Tunnel, which was the first ever under-river tunnel. The mixologist is actually a cocktail gardener. So you have this beautiful garden with torches and fairy lights and fire pits. And then the cocktail makers, they come around and they pick the plants, they pick the flowers and they pick the herbs and they pick the botanicals. And these are the sources of the cocktails that are at once healing and medicinal, 
but intoxicating at the same time. It's really quite special. It's the Midnight Apothecary in Rotherhide. Beautiful. Um, Marcella, you just got back from a shoot in the Engadine. What did you find there? Yesterday I came back from Engadine, like you said, from our fall fashion shooting, where we had the perfect weather for this. There were white fog over dark green forests, intense rains, but in between some warming sun. So for the shooting, we had to order all the new accessories and collections from our showrooms, mostly on base of digital lookbooks and pictures. What strikes me again and again is the difference between pictures and reality, despite increasing digital perfection. You know how different it can feel when this wool coat arrives, I having it in my hand. It's so different than I saw it on the picture. Or how small or how huge suddenly a beautiful leather bag can be. It's always strikes me. It's incredible. So therefore, the digital remains for me always a surprise bag. And then I was thinking, okay, it's not only the clothes, but how did look the house you booked for your holidays, Sophie? Well, exactly. And I think it's interesting to also take these beautiful woolens to the mountains and look at them in the mountain light. And the context that you're in is so important to kind of viewing garments and the texture, as you say. But then I suppose the great challenge for you and the team is to make sure that we really get the kind of essence of those things on camera. We're shooting on film often, but that is the challenge. And I think from the look of the shoots that I've seen, you've done a very good job, Marcella. Yeah, it was really fun. We had a huge team. The photographer came from Milan, the stylist came from Munich and originally Berlin. And our model, she's actually an artist. She came from Vienna, so it was quite an international team up there. It was a wonderful cooperation. And Sophie, what did you discover this month? So it's less of a discovery and more of a long-term project. Since I've been living in France, I've been collecting these furniture from La Fuma. It's actually camping furniture. Their little factory is south of Lyon and it's been going since the 50s. But beautiful things. And because I'm, I love little spot of camping, Julian. <laughs> Glamorous <laughs> Under Sophie, <campus>. who knew? <laughs> There's some beautiful spots, really natural spots on the East Coast, which I really love. And this French brand is great because the pieces are so elegant, so light, a kind of 50s vibe. And they've done a collaboration with recently with a bag maker and so they've done a leather edition of this like deck chair almost like a kind of director's chair so I've got a couple of those to add to my collection I've got a little bit of vintage La Fuma from the 60s yeah. and so now my little enclave of this stuff is getting larger. In your little city garden. I know. <laughs> and it's just such a joy to add to it every now and then and just to get these pieces that I don't know when you bring them into the natural environment and that's the only thing you have with you. You really start to develop a relationship with it. The way that they sit in the kind of little grassy knoll that we always stay in is just really lovely. So, And they've got a butterfly chair, which is lovely old canvas. And so I think the textures that you take with you, I mean, I really don't like acetate mm. and all of these plastics with camping. It's got to be a little bit natural. So it's a bit of a quest rather than a discovery. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds wonderful. Well, I think we should start with our first duo of guests. It's the height of summer and we want to turn our attention to women's swimwear this month. Whether you opt for a bikini or a swimsuit or choose fashion over function, swimwear is a staple of the summer wardrobe and comes with a radical history. Today we want to talk a bit about that history and also bring it up to date with current trends, from shapes to sustainability. 
Joining us here in London, we have senior fashion curator at the V&A Sonnet Stanfill. And in Zurich, Marcella is joined by the founder of the Swiss swimwear brand Round Rivers, Peter Hornung. Sonnet, perhaps we could start with you and get some context. I wonder if you could do a brief potted history of women's swimwear. When did it become a main part of the fashion world? Are there any key pieces over time that really radicalise what women wore to the beach? Well, that's um, a challenge to do a potted history of swimwear, but I'll try. And I'm certainly talking in reference to our collection at the V&A, which mainly covers women and men's fashion in the water from the 19th century to the present day. So you really do go from the 17th century when bathing became a kind of a popular kind of medical treatment, but it was often, you know, you were all always very covered. And that continued into the 19th century um, when saltwater bathing became a prescribed kind of health cure. But sexes were segregated. And so fashion didn't really make it into the water until the early 20th century when women became more active in sport. And therefore, they wanted and demanded greater freedom of movement and was kind of a battling cry around this issue of modesty and how much of women's bodies could be visible. So there's some kind of key moments. I was just thinking about because we're in the Olympics right now. The Olympics of 19 was the first time that women competed in swimming. If you look at images, you can see that the first examples of what you might call a kind of trunks and tank top combo was worn by women for those competitions. And in the early decades of the 20th century, that style was slowly adopted by more and more women. But along the way, there were protests. People thought it was immodest. It was, you know, revealing too much. And I think another key moment came with the American female swimmer, Gertrude Ederle, who was the first woman to swim across the British Channel, the English Channel. And she did this in a two-piece swimsuit in 1926 that she fashioned herself by cutting a single one-piece into two. And so these kind of very high-profile moments in sport in the early 20th century, I think, moved fashion along for women in the water. The wonderful thing about fashion is always a sign of the times in a way. And I think with swimwear, it really is a look at society and history and its progression. And I'd say certainly in terms of women, what do we see, what do you see when you look at your collection? Swimwear reflects fashion and also moves it forward because of the athletic and sporting element. And I'm thinking about early examples of the bikini, which launched in 1946. And thereafter, there were all kinds of iterations. And one of my favorites is a 1960s design by the Italian Emilio Pucci. And it's this kaleidoscopic 60s print with turquoise and cobalt blue and yellow fashioned in a kind of bra and kind of tank bottom for the fashionable woman at the seaside. And there are many other examples as well, but that's one of my favourites. It's interesting that we even talk about these garments being radical because now we're just so used to the bikini and the one piece and lycra, but it's hard to even cast your mind back to a time when 
these were radical garments and they were a little bit scandalous. Do you have any pieces in your collection that were, you know, considered at the time to be actually kind of a bit outrageous? I mean, I always think of Coco Chanel on the beach in her pyjama two-piece and even that, she was really breaking free of the Victorian constraints that were imposed upon women. She was a, a trailblazer in her time just for wearing some male pyjamas, <laughs> let it's alone lycra. True. It's true and I think that example of the beach pyjamas is a really good one because... We look at that now and see, well, the body's quite covered up in that. But what was radical was the fact that women were wearing trousers. And the seaside was, I think, has always been a place where kind of moors and um, constraints in terms of fashion have melted away. In fact, we have some beach pajamas from the 1930s in our collection. And at that time, they would have been considered definitely pushing the boundaries. Sonnet, we'll bring you back in in a minute, but I wanted to throw to Peter in Zurich. Peter, you have a brand that is very based around sustainability. And it's interesting to hear Sonnet talking about the evolution of swimwear because lycra and you know plastics came in and liberated women to some extent. But now we have this problem of sustainability, which is something your brand is really tackling with using plastics to produce swimwear, to recycle plastics, I should say, to, to produce swimwear. Do you think this is the future of the sector? And what have you been doing to try and sort of take this problem and really make the best of it with this incredible collection you have? I think plastics in swimwear is state-of-the-art because of the dryness factor. It dries very fast and I think it will stay with plastics also in the future. But um, I think what we really need to pay attention to is what kind of plastics is used. And this is, at least in my understanding of sustainability, very important. Talking about recycling, I think we have to differentiate in the meantime between an upcycling and a downcycling. Because recycling, as it says, doesn't really exist. So, for example, if you see the pet bottle that we source out of the river and we turn it into plastic flakes, into granules, into yarn, into textile, and then making garments out of it, so we know where our plastic comes from. We know that these are bottles from the Zurich Lake and from the Zurich River. There are hundreds or even thousands of swimwear brands using old pet bottles. But the question is, which pet bottles? If we don't know the source, it's not a good sign. If we know the source, where it comes from, we can see if it is really sustainable or not. So when a textile producer takes correctly disposed pet bottles and turns it into sustainable fashion or into sustainable fabrics, then it's a downcycling because it's a mixture of different materials. It's elastan, it's polyester, it's nylon, it's wool and so on. When you want to recycle these textiles, again, it's impossible, at least for nowadays. So that means what seems as a green fabric is not ecological at all. So because you cannot reuse and reuse and reuse it. So this is a big problem in the fashion industry. Coming back to recycling, when you take pet bottles that are outside of the circular system, so that means in the ocean, in rivers or in landfills, then it's upcycling. And this is the only way to go, I think, in sustainable fashion. What you're explaining is a fast fashion problem as an industry and as consumers we have created. And it's difficult to find a way back 
with swimwear because it is something that you need plastics for, as you said. We need that elastic and that drying ability. So we found ourselves in a situation where it's much more difficult to say, oh, there's a natural alternative or exactly there are so many different problems with upcycling and recycling. Do you think the industry as a, as a whole needs to come together to tackle these problems? Well, I think, first of all, plastics should be just used where it makes sense. So, for example, swimwear, outerwear, or also shoes, for example. And then I think we have to consider the potential of plastic is that it could be circular used. So this means that the designers, they should pay attention, focus on circular products. So that means, for example, our short. This is designed to be a circular design, so you can melt it again. And you can reproduce a new short out of it. This is only possible because we use only one single material. So we paid attention that we exclude all metal pieces, that we use just one single yarn, and this is recycled polyester. So also the sewing yarn or, for example, the straps where you pull your short together. Everything is 100% recycled polyester, and it can be recycled again and again. For me, that means that is business is kind of limited because when there are, I think like Lake of Zurich is quite small compared with other seas. So when there are no more pet bottles anymore, let's say in 10, 20 years, so the customers have to bring back their old swimsuits so you can produce new ones. Well, that could be really a future system of round rivers, definitely. But I'm not sure if the plastic bottle will be eliminated in the future. I think the plastic bottle itself is a perfect example for a circular system. If all the products would be like this, then we wouldn't have any waste in the perfect scenario. (laughs) So I think the plastic bottle will be there, but I agree with you. So let's say if round rivers will be growing, then we will run out of plastics. But it would be really, really cool for us to run out of plastic because then what we need to do is to find other sources. And we are at the moment already in contact with the Parisian River Seine to scale it to over there. So to use also the plastics from the Seine. And this is amount of plastics that it's unbelievable huge. So (laughs) it's a big city and and there are so many tourists and we have so many destinations to hang out at the Seine. So there's way, way more than in Zurich. So I want to bring it back to you because all the issues we're talking about are so linked to history, but also technology. I mean, I remember my mother showed me a bathing suit she had from the 50s and it was knitted and it used to fill up with water. I love vintage swimwear, but actually when you wear it, it can be very cumbersome and (laughs) not such a joy. But can you tell us about the collection and also the role of technology in swimwear? It's certainly the materials of swimwear that we've been talking about. That's been a kind of key part of the story of swimwear, particularly because All clothing for sport really pushes innovation forward in terms of textile technology because the demands of the body and of exercise put requirements on the fabrics that normal kind of walking around clothes don't necessarily have. And, you know, there's a key moment in textile innovation with regards to swimwear that I think we should underline, and that's the development or the launch of the yarn elastics in 1931, which was a kind of rubber core that was covered with, say, a cotton thread or a rayon thread. And it gave swimwear for the first time the option of that elasticity that we now take for granted. But 
from a conservation perspective, as I sit in the museum with the kind of concern for our collection into the future, those kinds of materials are inherently unstable and will degrade over time. And so if you look at a 1950s swimming costume that has some kind of rubberized thread in it, you'll notice that it start, starts to go, as we say, and loses its stretch and started to degrade. So for the textile conservator who's trying to keep the collection intact, those kinds of fibers that were absolutely groundbreaking and super innovative at their moment, sometimes over time, can be inherently problematic. In fact, the Pucci swimsuit that I was talking about has that really fabulous kaleidoscopic 1960s uh, print the top of the bikini, it had a padding in it to enhance the bust, which is something that we still can expect sometimes in our swimwear. Some designs include that kind of padding. But the padding was made from a fiber that had started to powder. And so in order to put it on display, our conservator had to remove it because it was um, inherently unstable. And so these innovations, which at the time make the swimsuit more fashionable or more comfortable to wear in the water, don't necessarily result in a long-lasting garment, which is why this conversation about innovation in terms of sustainable materials today and recyclability is really, in a way, the kind of cutting edge, I think, of what consumers can expect from their swimwear. I was wondering, Sonay, how can you decide today what will be tomorrow history? So, I mean, what are you buying right at the time? You're buying all kind of special or um, like designs and materials and it will be decided like 20 years later what was revolutionary at this time or how about your criteria for making your collection? Well, I should first underline that as a charity, the V&A is, I think increasingly we are grateful for offers of donations. So we we don't have a purchase budget that was as large as it used to be. And so when thinking about building up our collection, particularly of garments and accessories that are designed today, we have criteria that includes questioning whether it's representative of the key moment that we're in. One recent addition to the V&A's collection of swimwear was the 2012 Olympic swimsuits designed by Stella McCartney. And that was a wonderful example of a leading British fashion designer creating a range of clothing for sport that was going to be viewed by millions of people around the world. That's one example of a recent acquisition. And do you think, I mean, we're talking about women's bodies and there's a lot of politics around, as we mentioned, women's bodies. Do you think that the fashion for swimwear that we're seeing now is a reflection of some modern sentiments that we have today? I mean, it's interesting that Peter is designing as an architect, very simple, very block colours and simple shapes. Do you think that's a reflection of a sentiment in society? Absolutely. I think that those designs that he discussed, while the silhouette may be simple, the colors are absolutely on trend. And so you've got a kind of range of pastels and also kind of juicy, fruity colors. I think people are yearning for right now kind of a slice of sunshine um, in their wardrobes. And so I think that's what's so wonderful about swimwear. It's kind of a limitless range of options if you combine the choice of silhouette plus color or print. There's lots of ways to be fashionable on the beach. Well, Sonnet, it was a real pleasure to have you in the studio here at Midori House. And thank you, Peter, over in Zurich. 
For the latest issue of Confect, our reporter Alexei Korolev visited the metal workshop of Karl Orberg IV in Vienna's 7th district. The studio specialises in bronze and brass and was founded by the original Karl Oberg at the turn of the 20th century. It's since been passed through five generations as the current Karl Oberg's son and daughter have now also joined the team. The studio's output is limited and expensive and most of the work is done by hand. Making everything from bookends to paperweights and sculptures, they're a world-renowned family for their metal skills. Alexei Korolev reports. The workshop of Karl Alberg is always abuzz with the clanking of metal and the whir of machinery. Although often described as the embodiment of the never-dying crafts of old Vienna, the studio enjoys a truly global presence. Its clients include international fashion powerhouses such as Berluti, Petr Petrov, Hermès and Pierre Cardin. The Alberg family has been in the metalworking business for generations. But while its commitment to quality remains unchanged, the world around it has changed drastically. When I was a young kid, this street was one shop next to the other. Shops to sell uh, vegetables, for example, or coal. They repaired shoes. There's not one shop left, only a tattoo artist uh, next door. But uh, this whole part of our district became a structure where people live in and not work in. And this is something I must say is very important for a city where life is also around during the day. And this is what we, we are doing, a noise. We're making a lot of noise in the workshop and annoying people around, maybe. But uh, this is a city. This is this life in urban, urban living. And this is an interest in life. The Alberg premises consist of two adjacent 19th century buildings in Vienna's 7th district. The living quarters are upstairs and out of bounds for visitors, while the workrooms occupy almost the entire ground floor. The walls are hung with faded sepia photographs, posters and newspaper cutouts, and the workbenches and shelves are cluttered with spare parts and tools. Founded by the original Karl Alberg over a hundred years ago, the studio achieved international renown under his son, Karl II, who took over in 1926 after studying at the Bauhaus in Weimar. Many of Karl II's designs, including the now iconic open-palmed hand, are still in production and used in everything from paperweights to bookends and bottle openers. And already the fifth generation is contributing, Albert's son, also a Karl, and his daughter Zola, both of whom are keen to carry on the family tradition. It's still every day uh, that I learn something new and also as I sit here and listen to my father talking that I learn more about it and I learn more about the pieces and more about the way they um, are made. It's, it's also an honor that, I, that I'm considered to be here and do all these things because working with beautiful products is, is, is really dear to my heart. Mm. Is it something that you you sure you want to do for the rest of your life? Well, I hope so. <laughs> I think it's too early to say right now, but um, I hope so. And um, I think there's a lot of potential and there is a lot of room to, to work and grow. And I think um, I can bring some, some things to the table and, and help with that. 
The studio's latest project is a large brass foot sculpture, commissioned by the footwear brand Birkenstock for its flagship store in Paris. We got a request for the Aubic foot, but in a larger scale, because there's no such thing as um, a 3D printer for these products. Mm. So we had the little foot and we had to make it bigger, but in the right scale. So we started with little pieces of plastic foam, or foam. foam. It was mm. foam. So we cut it in little pieces and then we kind of sacked it together and it kind of grew under our hands. So it was really... A magic it looked like a, like a, a little mountain model. Yes, in the beginning. <laughs> yes, it didn't resemble a foot. Yeah. In the beginning, uh, it was horrible. Yeah. <laughs> and we, we made photo documentation, of course. But this is how it looks fresh from the foundry. Mm -hmm. It's pretty dirty, and then it—that's the sole. Mm -hmm. And then it got cleaned off, so it looked like this. Yeah. And and how much did it weigh? around six kilos for the whole world. Yeah. But it's it's hollow, it's not like full because then you couldn't even, yeah, you know. Yeah. Despite a few delivery mix-ups, the workshop has done well during the pandemic, with customers as far as Japan and California. And Karl Alberg hopes this momentum will continue. It is an uphill battle, but uh, I'm very uh, happy what is happening now because Everybody's struggling out of the pandemic and everybody's trying to uh, keep customers and the same goes with us, with our customers. We never had so much work as now, so we're very happy. That was Alexei Koryalov reporting from Vienna. Coming up, we're sampling some summer rosé and we're celebrating the joy of travelling by train. You are listening to Confect Corner. Confect Corner is brought to you in association with Edelweiss Air. Edelweiss is Switzerland's leading premium leisure carrier with an impressive food portfolio to match. So whether you're missing those Mykonos skies or Ibiza nights, why not head there via Zurich? you'll receive the warmest of welcomes and an impeccable in-flight experience. Discover your dream destination. Whether you're gearing up for the Greek islands or mulling the Maldives, craving a hit of Havana or longing for Cancun, head to flyedelweiss.com for direct flights from Zurich to over 70 destinations, including more than 30 around the Mediterranean. With Edelweiss Air, you'll discover the most beautiful side of every destination. You're listening to Confect Corner and now you can hear the clinking of wine bottles in the background because we're joined in Zurich by Confect's wine writer Chandra Kurt who's arrived armed with enough rosé to see us through until autumn. Chandra, welcome. Thank you for having me. Great to have you and this is our first wine tasting on Confect Corner so very exciting and we have some amazing bottles in London which you have I hear the same sort of, is it kind of parallel and virtual wine tasting? <laughs> it's, it's just gorgeously delicious. We have this 
sort of range of different pinks across our studio table. So it's really a treat. So we should say we're taking some of these wines from issue three, where you, Chandra, wrote a beautiful column about rosé and how it's becoming such an interesting wine. It's gone from being considered to be sort of summer drinking, almost like a low wine, to being a very sophisticated and interesting product, which is being pioneered by a lot of winemakers that include a lot of fashion designers and celebrities. Why is this, do you think? You're absolutely right. It's a real moment now for rosé. So till like, say, 15 years ago, it was like a dessert wine, like not wine to be taken serious. And now you have important producers that started to realise that there is a need, there is a time for a more colourful wine also, a more wine that you drink without too much knowledge about, it. let's say, the terroir, the vintage, and, and all kinds of things that you just can enjoy, like an easy, easy drinking drink. And of course, there were some important people that started this whole movement. And the first wine we have today here is the Whisper Angel, a typical Rosé de Provence. I think they did a lot of work that Rosé became full fashion. Well, I'm going to pop the cork here in London and you can pop your cork in Zurich. So already all the, the wines here and um, if you compare, the, the, we have four bottles and the, the Whispering Angel in, in the colour will be the lightest. It's very pale, very beautiful. It's almost kind of like a, they say in French, gris, where it's sort of so pale it's almost white wine but lovely smell as well I love the way Chandra describes it it's like rosé with the blush of the rosé and I think the lightest roses are like a blush isn't it this one is really a blush and maybe we do a little education here because we do a intra-country tasting. So how do you taste you look at the wine you look at the color and then you take the glass to your nose before you drink you just smell the wine and then maybe Gillian what do you smell when you put your nose close to the wine Candy floss. (laughs) Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Candy floss, but very gentle. Exactly. Mm. It's gentle. It's maybe a little flowery, but it's a very gentle wine that in a way invites you to take the first sip. I'm smelling kind of like a strawberry plant, not really even the fruit. But, you know, when you're picking strawberries, that lovely smell, a little bit acidic. Exactly. This is also absolutely fitting. Marcella, you have a Um, thought? Yeah, for me, it's more apricot. Like soft, soft apricot. And you see here we learned that one of the first basic lessons is that everybody has a little bit of different sensitivity or, or, or sense different things. But what we all said, it's like a gentle wine. It's a fruity wine. So this is already, it's, it's a gentle, fruity driven wine. Are we drinking now? I, I, I think now it. you... you, you <laughs> 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 Usually, you know, you drink and I will spit again, but you don't have to do that. So just drink and see what happens in the palate. So do we see here again the same aromatic than we felt in the nose? Mm. I think it's a bit more surprising. (laughs) The scent is so gentle. And then when you take your first sip, it really has much more of a tang. It wakes you up and you sort of feel like really luxuriating in another sip, which I'm going to take now. I think it's it's a night you feel a nice freshness, like like cold fruit, like chilled strawberries, and it has a silky texture. It's a wine that keeps you drinking. You know, it's not too heavy that you make a stop. It's like Gillian just had it naturally. She takes another sip. 
I concur. I'm just going to go with you on that, Chandra. <laughs> what food would you marry this with? So this is also a beautiful thing about rosé. It's like a passepartout wine. You can go just from, from antipasti and little starter dishes. You can have Mediterranean dishes. You can have fish. You can have even um, dishes with coriander or lemongrass. So rosé has a vast possibility of combination, which makes it a very pleasant all-day wine. So I'm going to reach for this other wine we've got in front of us, which has got the most beautiful label. I know you're not meant to select wine on the basis of label design, but it's a Rosato, which is by Dolce & Cabana, the fashion duo. Um, such an amazing box as well, and a beautiful colour. Just a little bit richer than the Whispering Angel. More kind of rosy and a pink Lipstick pink. Yeah, a kick to it. <laughs> so you see, the colour of a rosé lays in the skin of the grapes. And in the first wine, we had grapes like a Grenache, Saint-Saëns and Tibon, which are a little bit lighter in colour. And now in the next one, we move to Italy. It's the winery Stona Fogata from Sicily. And you have Nerello, Mascarese and um, Nocera, which are a little bit darker. And of course, this shows immediately in the wine. Donna Fogata and Dolce and & Cabana have this beautiful new collaboration and I think all kinds of new wines are being produced right now. And, you know, I think the label is also important in the wine because, in a way, the first thing what we do when we see a bottle, we look at it before we even open it. So, so when so you say, I think some listeners might be a bit, I don't know, sceptical about this idea of a collaboration. I mean, Donna Fogata is the producer. What role do you think that the Dolce & Cabana team would play in the collaboration? Well, first of all, they create a, already with their fashion a world of their own and they also have a panettone mm -hmm. and they have pasta already, Dolce & Cabana. So I think it's nice that fashion designers also are not against food so that people have pleasure also by eating and drinking. Collaborations like this usually work that they taste together, they define a style of wine and of course the design of the label will be done by the fashion people. So we've poured ourselves a little tickle okay, let's here. try. Mm -hmm. So if you do the same in a wine, in a way, wine tasting is very boring because you do all the time the same thing. So we, the colour we described already, and if we smell now the wine, is there a difference if you come, think about the first wine? The smell lasts a little longer, I think. The sensitive lingers a little longer, so it must be that much more potent. You see, for example, I smell now less fruit. I think it's a little bit more um, modest, but it's in the modesty that, that you smell, she's like Gillian, you say it, she's deeper. Marcello, what's your take on this one? Yeah, I'm missing the citrus, uh, fresh citrus I had at the Whispering Angel. Um, and here I'm searching in my brain for the right words, but it's really deeper. I'm very um, influenced by the color. And this one I see like a perfect sunset in front of me. Wonderful. That's the sunset is for me also the cocktail time. And for me, rosé is always the perfect because it's also so light. It's a perfect cocktail hour wine that you're sipping until the sun is gone. With rosé it's so amazingly uplifting the colour. It sort of urges you to kind of enjoy that apéro and just feel summery and feel there's a moment of, I don't know, little miniature fete in that moment you drink it. It's funny because it is just the colour of the wine but it has the connotations of a little bit more joyful than maybe a red or a white. And summer, I think your first rosé, it is the premiere to summer. You, you know, <laughs> regardless of the weather, it's like suddenly the season is upon us and it's like, oh, let's go have a rosé. 
the good thing is it's also holidays. And what are we in this time? We are more relaxed. Everything, you know, looks a little bit rosé. So we are not upset. We are more quiet. And I think the wine is really the ambassador for these leisurely moments that we don't have so many sorrows. And it is like the rose-tinted glasses. Everything looks better and feels better after a bottle of rosé. <laughs> Even having it in the studio is cheering me up. <laughs> it's wonderful. It's wonderful to hear. We move now to the Swiss one. We have even a wine from Switzerland, which is the Eau de Perdri. It's a terminology for Swiss rosé wine done out of Pinot Noir. And it's from Chateau d'Auvergne. It's a 400 years old estate. And Sophie and Gillian, we have to go there one time. It's a really beautiful castle. Next time you're here and the family cooks very well and they will welcome us with open arms. So the smell here, if I might take the lead, it's a little bit more... Um, like strawberries washed into a little bit liquid honey. So it's a little bit, you have this sweet, sweet fruit. I love that description. I strawberries think washed in honey. Mm. What is the difference between the process of making red wine and white wine? Where does, you know, are they pink grapes <laughs> that you make rosé wine? Excuse my ignorance. No, no, this <laughs> is back to the basics here. One, one thing is, as a seasoned rosé drinker, <laughs> In Japan, there are, I think, pink grapes, but, um, you know, like the color lays in the skin. So you do rosé 99% from red wine grapes. There are two major, major ways to do it is like when you press the grapes, you know, because if you cut the grape inside, the flesh is white. So you let it with the skin, not too long, and then the juice will have a gentle color. And this is more the Rosé de Provence style, like the first two wines that we have. And then the next two styles, in a way, the Eau de Pedri and the, the last one that we will taste, you, you press it and you let it much longer macerate, you call this maceration, the juice and the skin, and this gives this darker style of rosé. But usually it's very difficult to do because you have to be careful not to let it too long, otherwise the colour will not be the one you want. I remember from my time in France that champagne, well, rosé champagne, is made by mixing a little bit of red You wine. see, you just touched the exception here, and this is absolutely the case. That they Officially, you know, most of the region don't allow to mix red and white wine grapes, but in the champagne it's common, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir and Pinot Meunier. So Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier are red grapes and Chardonnay is white. And there you mix the two um, grapes. But we can also mix all of them and it's still a white wine. So it's all about how long the skin contact and the juice are managed. So our final wine feels like it's pushing the boundaries of rosé because it's so much darker than the others. It's almost a kind of cherry red, but not quite. It's sort of dancing on the line. No, so this is also the grape. It's it's Teroldego, which is a red wine grape, a very dark grape. And it's also a natural wine. It's done by Elisabetta Foradori, which is really a very good wine producer in North Italy. She really lets the... The skin contact pretty long. So you see that if you compare the first to the fourth, I mean, it's like two different worlds of wine. It's and if I taste this one, it should, it should be actually the strongest from all of, of the four. Ooh, yeah. Natural wine. It, it sometimes has a... It feels a tiny little bit acidic on the nose for my taste, but... You have here these red cherries. I, w- I would say a lot of red cherries and plums. And when it's in the palate, you have an additional element which are on the tongue a little bit dry but this makes it a good wine to pair with food because you, you have a structure but I was wondering one, about that what food would you pair with this? I will even dare to roast lamb chops on the grill and eat it or something with aubergine which is mm. stronger in taste or mushrooms you grill some mushrooms mm. and this will fit wonderfully I'm sort of thinking Lebanese food would go exactly well with this, very good so. 
But actually, Chandra, you really inspired me to drink rosé with food because before I saw it always as a drink, you know, maybe pre-dinner and on a terrace kind of moment. And actually, having spoken and spent time with you, I've, I've realised that it's a great dinner wine, table wine. Absolutely. You know, in general, I think one, two glasses maybe as opera, but usually when you enjoy wine, you should eat something. And, and I think rosé really is a serious wine also for dinners. So do you think that the reputation of rosé has completely been transformed in the last few years by some of the producers we have at this table and your table in Zurich? Completely changed, of course not, because you will always have the hardcore wine lovers that only drink the vintage and the soil and the price and the limitation. And they will always have a little smile when they see rosé because it's a different kind of wine enjoyment. But I think today we have so many representable, beautiful examples like the four we had here, for example, that you will gain more newcomers also that find the way to wine via the rosé wines. And I think this is very beautiful. Marcella, let me ask you, which was your favourite wine today? Today is raining, so the, the last one, the Lézère, would be probably the best one to have something more, a deeper kind of wine. And the Whispering Angel for a hot, hot summer day. But let me ask something, Chandra. I see people always putting tons of ice cubes to their rosés. Does this kill the taste? It dilutes it. It makes it a little bit more watery, if I may say so, and it makes it lighter. But, for example, when you are in the Provence, where Whispering Angel is from, and it's so hot and you sit on the beach, the wine gets immediately warm. And I saw it even there that they put ice in the glasses at lunch when they drink their glass of wine. So one part of me say no, one part of me say yes, it dilutes it. So usually when you have a stronger, like the last one, you have a more taste, it's a stronger taste. When you put some ice, it doesn't disturb so much. Well, Chandra, thank, thank you so much. This has been a frankly wonderful episode in the Confect Corner. <laughs> <laughs> the best um, so far. It's just really lovely to talk through and sort of exercise. It's very much a skill finding the words for the tastes in your mouth. And I think you do it so beautifully. And we could work on it a little bit, but <laughs> we're getting there. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks, Chandra. Finally, before we go, we give our final word this month to Berlin-based food and wine writer Ursula Heinzelmann. With nothing but the rhythmic hum of wheels rolling over the tracks in the background, she tells us why gazing out of a train window with a drink in hand can be a transportative pleasure. I have a thing about sipping a drink on a train, watching the world go by and pondering. My tipple of choice is coffee, and I'm not that finicky about its quality. As long as it is hot and black, it will cast its spell when I lean back and allow each bitter sip to act like Ujjayi breathing in a yoga flow session, focusing but letting go at the same time. Being in a quiet carriage is also essential. No jingling electronics or hiss from leaky headphones, please. For me, musing at the vast landscape while in locomotion is a form of meditation, the opposite to long, mind-calming walks, which are equally important for my sanity. Any train is fine, although I find long-distance ones work wonders for my mood more than regional dawdlers full of chatty children. 
My most perfect train journey was aboard the Venice Simplon Orient Express from Venice to Paris. I had been treated by a generous friend and although we were in a small group, at the time each of us was caught in our own personal bubble of tormented thoughts. I was preoccupied with a bitter goodbye from a longtime companion and my whole universe felt derailed. The journey began with a few nights exploring Venice, where the lagoon's chorus of gentle flapping waves set the tempo for the train's slow rolling trundle. I remember that the food in the beautifully restored dining cars was excellent and that I enjoyed eating it. But what I recall much more vividly is sipping an Alto Adige Riesling while gazing at the very vineyards on which the grapes were picked. I still remember the deep green of the dark fir trees when we reached the Brenner Pass between Italy and Austria. Time for a glass in the bar car, anyone? The pianist played a melancholy rendition of Moon River. Dinner was a preamble to the return to the bar and it's now more upbeat tunes, backed by the rumbling and rattling of the train. While savoring a glass of single malt scotch whiskey, my mood shifted like a train changing lines as if a signal had changed and a new track ahead was visible through the fog. As if on cue, the man at the piano intoned Edith Piaf's La Foule with its fall farandole about sudden delight and sudden loss. I fell asleep thinking about something I'd read by the late American food writer MFK Fisher on her travels around Europe. I imagined her drinking Astispumante on the train from Vevey to Milan with her dying lover back in 1939. The wine was warm and almost sickish and we looked quietly at each other with delight. Fisher wrote in a rhythmic recounting that matched the bustle of the train as my eyes grew dim. When I awoke, the grey slate roofs of Paris were glowing in the morning sun under a bright blue sky. I was ready for life and grateful for the past 24 hours that already felt like a dream. I know now that when I need to recalibrate, it's time for a train trip with a fix of hot black coffee or something stronger. You will find me in a window seat on the ICE Express from Berlin to Frankfurt, Munich or Köln, setting the world to rights one sip at a time. Well, thank you, Ursula, for that amazing audio essay. Gillian, do you have a favourite train memory? Oh, any train ride is always a treat, isn't it? But, you know, you you just can't beat that train ride from Zurich to Samaritz on the Reitische Bahn, the second lap of it where the train turns red and it's like a caterpillar that slinks along the slopes of the mountains. But what is perfect is that they have this old vintage dining car. And my ritual is to book it and to have the charcuterie 
platter with the cheese and then have a, a chilled half bottle of Riesling wine and sipping it, watching the mountains go by. Like, that is heaven. Oh, my gosh. Well, that's just sold it to me. <laughs> Marcella, you've just come back from Samaritz and a, and a little bit of a train-themed shoot, which we can hint at for our readers for Confect 4, which comes out at the end of August. But tell us about your favourite train memory. So my favourite train memory is not in St. Moritz in Engadin, which of course is lovely, uh, but it's, the, it's also red. It's La Freccia Rossa in Italy, which I lately discovered when I had to take uh, the train from Rome to Florence. And instead of driving by car, um, I decided to take this Freccia Rossa, which was an amazing experience. It was air-conditioned, you were served by waiters with newspapers, cold drinks and disinfection material. And it was non-stop Rome, Florence in 90 minutes. Amazing. With the most beautiful views. Because I realized when you're driving by car, the autostrada, the high highway, you, you almost never see something because it's, it's kind of covered by plants. And with the train, with the Freccia Rossa, it's like a movie through Tuscany. It was just amazing. And um, yeah, I discovered this actually. So my next travel through Italy will be, of course, with Freccia Rossa. Or how I learned there is even something better called Italo. It's all also a high-speed train through Italy, but even more luxu- luxurious. So... Yeah, let's enjoy traveling by train. And Sophie, I can imagine you love a lovely train ride. I do. I really love them. Um, I did have an amazing trip once on the night train from Budapest to Croatia. And it was so formative. It's like one of those coming of age rail trips where things happen and it was wonderful. And we had bottles of red wine and we talked to all these wonderful people and it was very sort of just felt like an, a true adventure and but n- not the slick experience of the Freccia Rossa that you're talking about but much more um I don't know that feeling where you can just pull down the window and stick your head out and breathe the air that's you know as you're passing through these amazing rural e- places exhilarating yeah and then you arrive feeling a little bit worse for wear because you never get a good night's sleep really on these beautiful trains because of the I know the motion, but the sense is so is so wonderful. So, yeah, I'll pick that one. Here's to making more train memories as as travel opens up. Definitely, um, no, sign me up. I'm I'll be there with the half. Make that a full bottle of Riesling. <laughs> <You're on. laughs> um, well, that's all we have time for on this edition of Confect Corner. Thank you to Gillian Tobias and Marcello Palak for keeping me company again. Our summer issue of Confect is out now, and you can subscribe at confectmagazine.com. While you're on our website, why not sign up to our weekly newsletter, Confect Compact, for interviews, fashion tips and wine recommendations. Confect Corner was produced by Holly Fisher, Carlotta Ribello and Paige Reynolds. And thanks to Christy Evans and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. We'll be back next month with more. But until then, from me, Sophie Grove, goodbye and thanks for listening. Listener.